Hi guys, James here. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to give you guys a quick heads up about today's episode. It seems that while everybody here in the tomb could hear me just fine, when we are recording this episode, I was actually recording with my laptop mic. And so, as you might expect, my audio is a bit crap. I've edited it as much as I could, and I've added a new audio where able, but it's going to be a bit choppy on my end, guys, and I apologize. We debated scrapping the episode entirely, but Mr. Gravesley wouldn't let us. Oh, speaking of Mr. Gravesley, here he comes now. Shh, I wasn't here. Mr. Pop. Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a marvel horror podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hey James, what are you up to? Oh, hi Trey, I'm just experimenting with that book I found. You mean the one you said might be the Darkhold? Yeah, it's full of all kinds of spells. I thought I'd try an easy one first. Summoning a ghost. Why? Why not? Klatu brata nikto kalima kalima Oklahoma zizu Ah! Hey, you're not a ghost! What? No, where... What? I was eating Cheerios. No, 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 I'm not a ghost. I'm, I'm John Wilson. I'm a, I'm a podcaster. That's funny. We host a podcast called The Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson. I'm James Hickson. What a crazy random happenstance. I, I like to podcast, and I, I have comics right here. That, I mean, it's an X-Men comic, but it has Frankenstein's monster in it. Perfect. We'll be right back after this message. Oh, I misread guest as ghost. Stupid fancy calligraphy. They've got Wolverine. They've got Storm. Even Beast. Right where those mutants belong. In a can. <laughs> New from Chef Boyardee. All your favorite X-Men in pasta shapes and excellent sauce. We got them. And only you can set them free. New X-Men Pasta. It's not just a meal, it's an adventure. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror podcast. And we're going to start our podcast today with a bit of a deviation from what we usually do on the show. Um, We actually have a copy of Uncanny X-Men number 40. And John, if you don't mind doing the summary. Yes, and not to be pedantic, except I am always pedantic. But these X-Men are not yet uncanny. These are still occasionally known as the strangest teachers of all, the teener, teenagers of all time. Right now, they're the most unusual fighting team of all time. And these are the X-Men way back in the days before Wolverine and Colossus and Nightcrawler. These are the original five X-Men before they were canceled. So we have the Beast, we have Iceman, we have the Angel, we have Cyclops. Um, this issue is written by Roy Thomas. Uh, Don Heck did the art. George Tuska arted over his art, and Artie Simic wrote letters over their art. 
and Stan Lee made sure it all happened and, you know, no one died along the way. So we open the story with um, some Danger Room shenanigans, a classic way to open up an X-Men story. The Beast is doing this, like, um, beam walking thing, and Iceman thinks it'd be really funny if I, if I made that beam slippery with some ice. And so the Beast is like, oh crap, this thing's slippery with ice. And he slips on the ice and he hits his head. And Bobby's like, oh crap, he almost died. That was probably dumb. Um, so before they can really get too mad at him, they hear this call from the, um, from the professor and they run down the hall and Jean Grey's down there in her, um, Marvel girl outfit, her outfit and Cyclops's outfit, I think are the only outfits from this era that actually have any memorability, memora, um, memorableness to them because the angel looks terrible. The beast looks generic and Iceman is, you know, ice. Um, so Xavier tells them, Hey, you know what? They found Frankenstein's monster. No, no, not the movie prop, the actual monster. It's in ice and they're getting ready to defrost it. So y'all need to go check that out because turns out that Mary Shelley's novel, the uh, Frankenstein novel was real. And they're like, oh, does that mean that Frankenstein's monster is a mutant? Don't be silly. But um, it's probably an android. And it might be that the person who made him, Victor Frankenstein, was a mutant, but he's dead, so we'll never know. So they go to the house where, uh, where Frankenstein's monster is being kept, and they basically barge their way in. Like, the security guard's like, nope, sorry, we're closed, you can't come in. And Jean Grey's like, you know what? Don't mess with me, I will throw you against a wall. So she throws him against a wall. And um, they go inside, and the Frankenstein's monster lives! And very much like, you know, a monster would, he's like, and he like you know, threatens people's lives and talks about destroying puny humans. And the X Men fly in to try to try to you know join the action. And Frankenstein starts punching them and punching them. And Cyclops is like, let me use my eye beams. And Frankenstein's like, no, I'm gonna punch you too. And Jean Grey um, pulls the X Men out of the way. Frankenstein's monster keeps on going. So the X Men go after him and um, they pursue him to a boat I think yeah so um, on this boat there are lots of people and the X-Men land they're like dude you're, X you're, you're crazy why are you on our boat we're going to shoot you um, they fight the monsters some more like a lot more like, there's lots of fighting the monster it, it, it does, goes on for several pages and then Xavier's found like you know what I can do this I want to zap with my brain um and he zaps him with his brain long enough for Iceman to frost Frankenstein's monster over again back into ice. And Monster's like, I, I, can, I can get out of here, I can break out. And when he does so, he kabooms and turns out he actually was an android. Xavier's random guess at the beginning of the story turned out to be true. Not only is he an android, he's an android made by aliens from outer space. And Xavier's like, and, and what Mary Shelley, like how she even learned about any of this and wrote a book on it, I got no freaking clue. This makes no sense whatsoever. So let's go home. Next issue, The Coming of Grotesque. Yeah, and then there's a backup story here that I did not read. I did not. Well, I skimmed it, but it I got nothing, so. I have read it. It's part of the Cyclops origin story, but it's, you know. It's that Silver Age origin miniseries of, of the X-Men that they did for everyone except Jean Grey. 
she did not get a backup origin series. Um, it's, you know, Silver Age X-Men. Yeah, and I mean, I know I must have read this issue at some point because I read all of issue I read all of X-Men from the first issue up until at least the Dark Phoenix saga, but I don't remember the story at all. It just seems it seems like a weird one-off. Like it doesn't really apply to anything that happened before or after. Right, it is very much a one-off. As I say, I remember reading, I remember the cover. The cover is kind of, it's visually dynamic. I like the cover. Um, and it stands out in my mind, it's like, oh yeah, there's that one time they fought Frankenstein. I remember that cover more than I remember whatever a grotesque is next issue. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, it is, it is pretty forgettable. They just came off of a big uh, Factor 3 story arc, which was... Where this mastermind, not the mastermind, but, you know, this this guy was gathering up all these mutants. He was capturing mutants and kidnapping mutants. And he was actually making a mutant army, but he turned out to also be an alien. And um, they ended up beating him. But it was, it was the X-Men's probably longest protracted storyline to date. Uh, I think the only other attempt they'd had at a continuing story was the Sentinel multi-parter. But, um, but yeah, it was... It's a really weird era because Roy Thomas was writing all this and Roy Thomas deserves a lot of accolades for his Bronze Age work. His Silver Age work, especially on the X-Men, is a bit less great. Yeah, this is very, it seems to me at least, very much in the period where Roy was mostly imitating Stan's work. Mm -hmm. Like he's just sort of doing what Stan did, but more. Yeah, he's boy editor Roy Thomas. (laughs) Stan's pal, Roy Thomas. <laughs> I don't know. This is really weird for, I think, both Trey and I, because we both know Roy Thomas. <laughs> yeah, he, he lives in this area, so we, we've had some conversations with him in the past. I have a huge amount of respect for what he did in his tenure on comics um, in the 70s and the 80s. Lots of good stuff came out of Roy Thomas's brain. Absolutely. When he was finding his feet, I mean, early Avengers Roy Thomas and early X-Men Roy Thomas are not super awesome and although he finds his feet with the avengers and has a really solid tenure with them he finds his feet with the x-men just in time for it to get canceled right yeah i remember his stuff with the x-men once he finds his feet is being really good Mm -hmm. which is about 10 issues from now yeah with neil adams he's he's really good and of course they get canceled and I remember really liking that stuff, like, you know, when um, Sunfire shows up and they have to fight in Washington, D.C., that, for some reason, that comic is very much ingrained in my memory, but, and... Sauron's first story is really good. Yeah, yeah. I know I've read this comic before, but it really is not sticking at all, and... Um, I just have to say, um, the most relatable part of this book is when Frankenstein keeps attacking the X-Men because of how awful their costumes are. <laughs> is it just me or is this the worst the ugliest angel costume we've ever had definitely the most generic well then the, there's the one where he inverts the yellow and the red on his top he's like a mostly red and he calls himself the avenging angel oh yeah I mean continuity wise because it's in the origin story it's the outfit he wore before they all got the matching costumes for the X-Men number one and then later he puts it back on again when he goes rogue for like an issue and a half. Huh. Um, That's right, because yeah. he's the he's the one who was already a vigilante when he joins the X Men. 
right. And he was getting vengeance for something. I forget what. Um, he was also the first one to get a solo series. He had a three-issue story written by Jerry Siegel, which is when his parents die and he gets all the millions. Wow. And they were, his parents were killed by the Dazzler. Not that Dazzler. <laughs> another Dazzler. According to CBR, this is his 15th worst costume. <laughs> I mean, he's had a lot of them, so that seems fair. Oh, crap, they're right, though. <laughs> so there are 14 I, that are worse? There are 14 that are worse. Although, I kind of like the Avenging Angel costume, but that might be the, the Tusca artwork, so... Yeah. But yeah, this comic, we read it because it has Frankenstein in it. This is not Frankenstein. It's really... It's, it's not Frankenstein. Well, and also... What exactly is Xavier a professor of? Because he seems to have spent a lot of time thinking about the like origin behind Mary Shelley's novel and whether it might be true, and also whether the monster might be a uh, robot. And I'm not sure why he would even care. Exactly, and here Professor Xavier's powers really ill-defined in this comic. It's like, I sense the robot coming. How? He has magical mind powers. I mean, he can do anything if he thinks hard enough. But I was thinking about the whole Mary Shelley novel too. It's like, okay, he makes a big deal. He actually calls Bobby. I was like, you didn't read the book. Obviously I signed it last spring. And then I was thinking about, okay, but the actual narrative of the novel would not allow for an android from space. No. Like, the, it, it vividly portrays Frankenstein and his assistant going out and getting body parts from graves to build a monster. That's literally the whole thematic thrust of the book is playing God. So, you know, I think Xavier is just being a jerk because he like, that's what he's a doctor of. He's a professor of being a jerk. That's fair, yeah. And creepy. There's this point in it where he's talking about, you know, I was doing uh, mental experiments, which I, it may be the modern comics coloring my opinion of Charles Xavier, but that just sounds creepy. Oh no, Silver Age Xavier is incredibly creepy. It's, it's just like I was doing mental experiments on Gene. Because this is the same era of Xavier that that like mentally confesses, I secretly am in love with Jean too, but I dare not say anything because I'm her teacher. Yeah, I'm just glad that he kept those thoughts to himself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I honestly I think the best part of this whole issue is the beginning with Beast in the danger not, <laughs> danger room yet or. You know, where Bobby tries to murder him. It right. is. The, the first page, they say, our danger room testing is serious business. Although, in this case, danger room is hyphenated. Yeah, that's honestly the best part of the issue, where Bobby just tries to kill a classmate. I love the Beast. I can imagine Beast, he's, like, slow-stepping. He's, like, doing lunges with his arms, doing a gun show on that pole. <laughs> and uh, Bobby's like, you know what? <laughs> He, he really does almost kill Beast. Like, blunt, for, blunt head trauma is bad. He causes a lot of 
collateral damage throughout this issue, though. Yeah, like, I'm they're, pretty they're... sure he kills that curator. Right? Curator. Yeah. I mean, he freezes him. Yep. And he starts approaching, he starts menacingly approaching Iceman. Don't despair, I promise to give you one that will make mine seem decidedly pale by contrast. And Xavier comes in, stop clowning around, I want you. Who's clowning? It's a very thing line, a very Ben Grimm line. But, um, but yeah, I can see Beast is about to jump in at him. Also, Xavier saying, I want you, he could have phrased that better. Right. Um, they also steal a helicopter. Like, just straight up steal it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they don't have the resources of Reed Richards and Fantastic Four, where it's just like, um, I've been working on this pocket helicopter. <laughs> Full-size helicopter. Like a but... Dragon Ball capsule, he throws it down and it's a helicopter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're not quite at West Coast Avengers level yet, so. So, yeah, I mean, I guess they steal a lot of vehicles. I'm pretty sure they've commandeered a car before. Well, you, you you forgot to mention the best part about how they stole the helicopter. He mentally commanded the officials to give them the helicopter and then made them forget. So they so get to keep the helicopter. He's also like mentally assaulting the owners of the helicopter in order to get the helicopter. Like there have been whole comic book events around the dangers of mind wiping people without their permission. <gasps> Is this how they got the Blackbird? Like <laughs> mentally assault the Air Force? <laughs> You'll give nah, me they, your SR-71 Blackbird, but first, trick it out. <laughs> they, they took it from Stark. And you know, some guy, he, he's missing a helicopter on a form somewhere. It gets discovered when they do inventory. He's court-martialed, dishonorably discharged. He turns to drinking. He beats his wife and children. And he eventually puts a gun in his mouth. But hey, they beat Frankenstein. That's not really Frankenstein, so worth it. Frankenstein's android from Aliens from Space. Well, and I guess that's the thing that gets me, is there is no attempt whatsoever to make him scary in this. Like, he's basically the Hulk with eye beams. Yes. Oh, as far as, like, like giving it a mood or a tone of horror yeah, or whatever? Like they, they, yeah, like, it's very much Silver Age superhero, no, like, weird horror tone or anything. And today, the X-Men meet Frankenstein's monster. Da-da-da-da-da-da, X-Men. Right, right. <laughs> In fact, they even, like, someone early on, one of them even compares him to the Hulk. And it's like, yeah, that actually is about right. Because, let's be honest, there is nothing in this story that requires this to be the Frankenstein monster, except to put on the cover, the Frankenstein monster. And really, given when it was published, I'm shocked that they got away with doing, like, the flat top and the bolts on the neck and everything, because... Back in the day, Universal Studios was very protective of that design. Maybe they weren't noticeable enough. That's that could be it. Yeah. And I'll, I, I, yeah, I just I don't know. Um, I don't know how much legal stuff people would do proactively, or it was still a very much a it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission kind of thing. Yeah, or even just a it's not worth spending the time on going after it's just a comic right it's just one issue of one comic that we're going to move on let's see if we can squeak it out the door right hey look the comics code didn't notice we're going to do this i guess that might be the reason he's a robot instead Mm. of they can say that it's not (sighs) really frankenstein oh yeah actually that could very well be it 
I mean, okay, I guess we've solved the problem. Why? <laughs> why is why I mean, is that, trying to send a robot? This? That also gets around the whole like no zombies thing they had for a while, you know. And no vampires. He... Yeah, like same mm -hmm. reason that Morbius has to be a vampire created by science. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guides, a lot of official, you know, referency type books list this as the first appearance of Marvel's Frankenstein. I don't think that holds up. I And we haven't gotten to the Frankenstein solo book yet, but I will bet money that at no point in that book is he revealed to be an android from space. I wonder if they even ever have cause to reference this story, like in the saga of Frankenstein. I mean, I'm assuming they must in order for them to reference this Vaughn reference. So I'll be really interested to seeing if that is the case. Now, it would have been cool if they had had, like, like real Frankenstein encounter the android at some point in the past and fight him. Mm-hmm. Well, the Frank... Yeah, because... Yeah, Xavier, at some point, he says he scans the guy's mind, his robot mind, which how Xavier can use his mental powers to scan a robotic brain. You know, that's a whole other conversation. Right. But he says... I learned the real origin of the so-called Frankenstein's monster. He was the creation of an alien race on a far-off tropical planet 150 years ago, which puts the timing right. Um, it went berserk through a malfunction, became a menace to Earthmen. The aliens pursued it. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that says this has to be, you know, just from a 1968 X-Men point of view, there's nothing that says this has to actually have been Frankenstein's monster. Xavier could just as easily have ended with, instead of, we'll never know how Mary Shelley learned any of this, he could have said, I guess Mary Shelley's story was completely unrelated. Right. Right, and, I mean, I feel like, the only thing I can think of is I feel like there, does anyone remember the miniseries from, like, early 2000s, Marvel Lost Generation? Only vaguely. Mm -mm. Where it's John Byrne talking about, well, now that we have this almost 50-year period between World War II and the Marvel Age of Comics in current continuity, I'm going to do a miniseries that talks about all the stuff that happened in that 50-year period, including lost superheroes nobody remembers. And I'm almost certain that Frankenstein shows up in that book. Hmm. And gets frozen again for the X-Men Divine. Hmm. Well, it sounds like someone, either Bur excuse me, either Burn or whoever the first few people, were, few people were to make those tabulated websites just saw the cover. Right. Or pre-Wikipedia, pre-Comixology, pre-collected right. trade paperbacks, all anyone remembered was, hey, there was an issue where the X-Men fought Frankenstein. We should probably figure out how that fits in. Hold on, I'm looking up characters in Comic Vine to see if Frankenstein shows up in this story. Um, nope, he doesn't. I think I was thinking of the Yeti. Because mm. there's the Yeti that Johnny Storm encounters in um, an early X-Men issue when he's looking for the Inhumans. The early Fantastic Four issue. What did I say? X-Men. 
It's fine. Just, just, clarif- you, just clarifying. <laughs> I mean, Johnny Storm could easily find a Yeti in an early X-Men issue. It could have happened. But, yeah. Fine. All right. So, John, you're the local X-Men expert. Um, you're going to tell us what place this paramount, very important issue plays in the legend, epic legend of the X-Men. Go. It is eminently forgettable. They have just finished a story and they're going to go on to do something completely unrelated. You could take this chapter out. There's not a single thing in here that has subplot importance. Um, (laughs) I mean, you mentioned that he was doing mental experiments on Gene. I, I kind of missed that speech bubble whenever I was going through it. So maybe the fact that he and Jean are continuing to work on her powers, which is something that they do. Um, but yeah, that's that would be the only possible subplot importance in this issue. So this is so this is sort of like in uh, Uncanny X Men when in the midst of the Phoenix stuff, like they just randomly have an adventure with leprechauns. Right. The backup, since it is part of Cyclops's origin story, has more importance to continuity than the Frankenstein story. Right, and this story is reprinted in X-Men number 88 in 1974, which I'm pretty sure is the era where X-Men was canceled. They were just reprinting the old stories. It was a bi-monthly reprint book, yep. It's also been reprinted in Marvel Masterworks volume 35, X-Men Volume 4 Hardcover, which was released in 2004. It's also an essential classic X-Men Volume 2 trade paperback. And X-Men First Class Giant Size Special Number 1 in 2008. Okay, I'm looking up that Giant Size Special because I'm wondering why they would possibly do this. And it looks like it's a bunch of monster stories. Uh, The Thing from Another Isle, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Invasion of the Bobby Snatchers, excuse me. The Day the (laughs) Earth Just Wouldn't Stand Still in the mark of the monster, which is this one. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I would be really disappointed if I was reading the story in that giant size special, but yeah. But if it's all reprints of monster stuff, then that at least thematically makes sense. Actually, the the other three aren't reprints. The other three are short oh. stories, short stories that are new. Oh, so they were um, just filling out the issue. Yeah, and then uh, after 20 pages of short stories, they do this... And so it says 15 pages. I guess they might trim it down a little bit. Cause I think, no, this was 15 pages because the backup. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I wonder if they did that thing where they recolored it with modern colors. Because I kind of like that. As opposed yeah. to the standard reprint coloring, which is like blobs. One of my first experiences with that was whenever, um, when Janet died in Secret Invasion... They had, um, and Henry Pym came back from having been away with the scrolls for a while. They did this issue that the, the first story was him like getting reacquainted with life. And there's this really touching moment where I think it's Bobby is like filling him, not Bobby cause she was gone too, but somebody's filling him in on everything that happened. And there's obviously these montages as he gets more and more and more emotional hearing about Cap dying and everything else. And then the, in the backup of that issue was the first appearance of the wasp. And it was all recolored with the, you know, sort of 3D coloring that they have now. And, and yeah, it was really, really cool. Yeah, I've seen it with um, the Captain America number one, where they did basic, basic recolor 
with the, the kind of 3D colors, and Jack Kirby colored that way is gorgeous. Mm, oh, I bet. I can imagine. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that does it for this X-Men comic. Thank you so much for bringing it, John. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I was eating my Cheerios and reading the comic, and you zapped me over here, and until I can go home, I guess we're going to talk some comics. All right. Well, our next comic is Marvel Spotlight number four, featuring everybody's, like, 15th favorite, like, in Trope, okay. by Night. Before we get into this, I have, I, have a, I have a confession to make. So, Marvel Spotlight number four is also a Captain Marvel story with Steve Ditko art. If you... Get the one from 1980 by accident. So um, <laughs> it's important to select your correct Marvel Spotlight 4 when you're uh, getting ready for a podcast. You've not read the comic. No, I've read the comic, but I read the entire Captain Marvel one first going, <laughs> okay, when's the horror part going to come in? Right. Okay. <laughs> this is a really weird choice, but okay. <laughs> And when we come back again, we'll be talking about Werewolf by Night, not Captain Marvel. We'll be right back. On the next MST3K. Mystery Science Theater 3000, next Saturday at 5 at 11 p.m. Eastern. And we're back. Um, And our next issue coming up is Marvel Spotlight number four with the Marvel Spotlight on Werewolf by Night. Uh, title is Island of the Damned. Cover, issue, cover date is June 1972. Written by Jerry Conway. Art and inks by Mike Plug. Lettering by Sam Rosen. And the editor, as always, is Stan Lee. Jack Russell awakens from a lycanthropic nightmare to find what he thinks is a prowler outside his family home. Instead of a burglar, however, he meets Buck Cohen. Buck is a seasoned old reporter a taste for the occult and is there to investigate Jack's stepfather Phillips recent sale of Jack's true father's castle and its rumored mystical contents the dark hold Jack is outraged at the stepfather's sale of the castle and has been that has been left to his sister and himself but upon learning that the castle's new owner have relocated the castle from the Baltics to just off the California coast, Jack and Buck team up and come up with a plan to investigate further. The two plan together to steal Philip's yacht and investigate the castle. On a day of, however, the unexpected need for Buck to distract Philip means Jack must go out on the yacht alone. Soon, however, the weather starts getting rough and a tiny ship is tossed. Towering waves overwhelm Jack and send him into unconsciousness. He awakens to find himself being stood over by a man with a machine gun. The man forces Jack to come aboard his own boat and scuttles Philip's yacht with a hail of bullets. Jack soon discovers that he has arrived on the island, his island destination and is introduced to the castle's new owner, Emil Blackgar. Also on the island are Jack's machine gun hunting rescuer and Blackgar's beautiful young daughter Marlene and Blackgar's patience. It seems Blackgar has converted to castle in some sort of asylum, although the true purpose of which not even Marlene seems able or willing to explain. Jack is invited to spend the night though, but when night comes he is locked inside his room for his own protection. As tonight, 
Blackgar plans to operate. Jack Russell escapes the room, however, and makes his way to the library, which Marlene has revealed earlier in the evening contains the much sought-after Darkhold. Unfortunately, Jack has again forgotten about his time of the month, and before he can reach the Darkhold, he is transformed into a werewolf. The library overlooks Blackgar's operating theater, and Jack witnesses Blackgar's operation, in which an unwilling patient is transformed into a misshapen monstrosity which would probably die screaming if it still had a mouth. After everyone has left, Werewolf Jack destroys the lab, perhaps under strange influence of mysterious Marlene. Jack is caught in the act by the British Garth, however, who mistakes Jack for another one of Blackgar's creations. When he tries to redirect Jack to the holding pins, however, the two scuffle, and Garth realizes his opponent is not a misfit of science, but a supernatural creature of the night. A defeated Garth is thrown into the pins at the mercy of Blackgar's oft-abused patience. Next, Jack is beckoned by the silent figure of Marlene, who leads Jack to the study where Blackgar works. Operating off some kind of irresistible hatred, Jack sets upon Blackgar. After a surprisingly evenly matched fight, Blackgar is thrown from the window of his study to the distant ground below. Then, Jack is once again met by, by Marlene, who reveals that it was she who directed Jack to wreck the lab and ultimately kill her father, as she knew that she would be his next patient. Why and how has she controlled him thus? Marlene removes the always-present sunglasses to show him that instead of regular eyes, she possesses glowing blue orbs. That she is a mutant. And what's more, in addition to being able to influence feeble-minded werewolves, she is also a modern Medusa with the ability to turn men to stone, which Jack learns firsthand as he is transformed into one of the newest features in the castle's grotesque statue garden. Done. Yeah, I, I actually like this issue. It's fun. It's good. It, it doesn't do a whole lot to further Jack's story, but it, it it's a it's a fun sort of creepy adventure. Yeah, I mean, the cover is good. I look. You got, you know. The werewolf bursting into Blackgar's lab as a creature rises from the slab. And it's a fairly grotesque creature. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what you're looking at, but there's a big spoiler with Marlene on the cover. I mean, you don't know what it means because you don't have the context of the story, but she's not wearing her glasses. Oh, her eyes her are her eyes are empty. Yeah. yeah, her eyes are oh. empty and glowing. Which could easily be like a art error. Or even could. Like but the fact that she looks like that in the interior as well, yeah. once she takes the the glasses off. So yeah, like, I mean, it, it's it's weird because it's it's not really a spoiler because you don't have the context, you don't know what it is you're seeing or what it means. But once you read the issue, you go back, you're like, huh? They they put that right on the cover. Yeah, they did. So um, okay, my my first question. 
why would Jack make his stepfather his trustee? Did he have a choice in it? I mean, John, I don't know if you've read any previous Werewolf by Night. This was my first. It was pretty, I, I enjoyed it. But basically in the first issue or the first appearance of Jack Russell, um, his stepfather basically hires a hitman to kill his mother. Yeah, they, they cut the brake lines so it looks like an accident and she wrecks the car. Yeah, they mentioned that briefly in here. So yeah, it's kind of surprising. Why would he establish a legal relationship with his stepfather? My guess and is And still that, lives with him. Right. My, my guess is that He's the the stepfather somehow got it into the mother's will that he would be the trustee. Uh, so you think it's like a, an old, uh, a long time ago established thing? Yeah. Oh no, he's he, in the will, so that would have been relatively recent. Never mind. Yeah, the only reason he's not dead right now is because the mother on her deathbed made Jack promise not to raise a hand against her stepfather. Which, I mean. In a story, it's kind of ambiguous as to whether he actually hired the chauffeur to cut the brake lines or if the chauffeur basically is blackmailing him mm-hmm. by cutting the brake lines and basically telling him, you'll give me money or you'll be next. It's kind of unclear. But the stepfather is not a nice guy. No. He kind of lets the chauffeur be abusive to the wife and... It's a whole thing, so I don't, I just, it has to be something that was pre-established, that, you know. Yeah. But of course, as we see in the story, he's already kind of squandering Jack's fortune. He sells off his ancestral home. Mm-hmm. Which, um, again, in their first story, it's, a, it's established that Jack's real father was a baron, and... And a warlock. His, and a warlock, yes, a baron and a warlock. And a werewolf. Because the villagers basically discover he's a werewolf and kill him. And his mother returns to the United States with two babies in tow. And right. his stepfather. And what's important is that the, the, the real father also was the owner of the Darkhold. The, the book of spells, the grimoire, if you will, that has since shown up throughout the Marvel Universe. Yeah, I'm looking back over some of that dialogue establishment, and and just not to retread ground, but just to confirm what you were saying, definitely was the mother who made the stepfather the trustee, the way that the sentence is written. Mm. Um, the castle belonged to my mother. When she died, she left it to me and made my stepfather the friendly trustee. So um, that that was probably a will statement thing. And and yeah, this is all this is all kind of messed up. Jack does not... I mean, he's a grown-ass man, so you'd think that he could have more say in his life, but like all right. this stuff has been decided for him. And I'm wanting to say his first appearance, the very first Werewolf by Night issue, I think is on his 18th birthday. It is. Yeah. Okay. Because that, that's like the thing is his first transformation is on his 18th birthday. Okay, so he's still a young man, but... Yeah, yeah. Because lycanthropy, like Quagmire, waits for you to turn 18. Hey, Meg, 18 yet? No. Hey, Chris, how are you? Well, I'm glad, Brian. All right. <laughs> like Xavier. Oh. Now I just I'm want sorry. a family guy. I want a Family Guy um, parody that has Quagmire as Xavier. <laughs> I I can see that. All right. Um. So the whole trope of shipping a castle over stone for stone. 
Stone by Stone. I think I first saw this in a Scooby Doo cartoon. I I immediately thought of the Gargoyles cartoon from the nineties. Yeah. I know I've seen a story recently where somebody shipped a castle stone by stone, but I was also reading uh, the first Robin miniseries where King Snake has like an ancient Roman era water clock shipped over piece by piece to be rebuilt. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And my first thought was this entire thing exists based on a geographical phenomenon with the water. Where are you going to find that in your new place? But whatever, <laughs> you know, it ends after five issues and they get King Snake in jail. So. You know, it's fine. Poor water clock. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm okay with it. it. It's definitely a trope. In fact, I'm kind of tempted to go look on um, TV tropes and see if it's a thing. Well, and, and this this issue is sort of a hodgepodge of tropes, you know? Like, it's it, it's not exactly original in the material it's working with. It just does it in a fun way. Like, I mean, it's, it's Island of Dr. Moreau, right? Like... Yes, it's Werewolf Meets Dr. Moreau. But before we get to that, I really liked Buck Cohen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's basically Kolchak. Right. I thought the same thing. Uh, he's He's got that kind of, like... It, it, Kolchak, and as, as a Kolchak figure, sort of a precursor to a Fox Mulder type. Yeah, but I really liked him, and I was really looking forward to seeing more of him in the story. Right. Which is unfortunate because he disappears on page four of the story. <laughs> right. But but doing uh like playing an important role in distracting the stepfather. Yes, because they had to find a way for Jack to be alone on the boat. And So after page four when he speeds off the boat, I wonder how long Cohen and, and, and older Russell, Philip Russell, were were sitting there talking. I mean, like five minutes. Did they did they end up watching the the ten o'clock movie together? Maybe they cuddled. You never know. <laughs> I gotta say, Buck Cohen does look very cuddly. Yeah, he's a bear. Exactly. <laughs> Head cannon. Um, but and the the peacoat and sailor's cap sort of suit him. Yeah, it does. So and it suits Philip too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, speaking of Jack going off, we again have an instance of Jack basically forgetting that it's this time of the month, mm-hmm. which, you know, after the first two times, I think I would like mark that on my calendar. You would think so, but I've raised a teenager and it takes a while to get used to that. I'm just saying I teach eighth graders and they have sure. not figured out how to take care of themselves yet. So, no, you're right. I teach high school, so... Um, yes, we are. You're saying nerds! And, <laughs> and all at different levels, it sounds like. Eighth grade, high school, college. There yep. we go. We're when I get the... Th- and when I get them, they still haven't learned. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully they have by college, but, you know, maybe not. True. Although, it, it did make me think, is lycanthropy, the legend, the myth of lycanthropy, a metaphor for man's uncomfortableness with female menstruation? Mm. I mean, I there have been versions of the werewolf stories that have played with that. Like, Ginger Snaps comes to mind, um, where it's like a coming-of-age 
type thing with a girl who becomes a werewolf. Um, so, so it's something that, that has been made more explicit in some stories than in others. Now, you know that lunacy comes from the idea of being affected by the phases of the moon as well. Right. The, the word lunacy is tied to our word Luna for moon. Um, so I wonder if the concept of lycanthropy and the concept of mental illness are tied up together somewhere in the past. I know that vampires and werewolves overlap a lot yes. in mythology. Like they're, they are not nearly as distinguished as separate creatures as we think of them until about a hundred to 200 years ago. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and even, even more contemporary versions of vampires, one of their abilities is to turn into a wolf. Mm hmm. Yeah, which we will, I think, will end up seeing in some Tomb of Dracula issues. Oh, I'm sure. Um, back to the comic, though. Uh, we meet Marlene once we get to the island. Um, how old is Marlene supposed to be? It's not really clear. Um, 2037-ish? Because <laughs> um, there are points where she seems very young... But then there are points where she seems older. My guess would be no younger than Jack, but likely older. And I would say the same is true for Jack. Well, we know Jack. Yeah, there are times. There are times when he behaves like a kid. There are times when he behaves like someone who has more world experience. Eighteen-year-old. Right. Yeah. So yeah, she could she could be eighteen to twenty, and act like she's older sometimes, but she's also tortured and wretched, so she has that oldness of soul looking to her. Right, and and, and clearly is in a position of fearing for her life, especially by the second half of the book. Yeah. As are we all. I mean, yeah, it definitely goes into the whole thing of Jack Russell meets the horror trope of the month, where, mm-hmm. as I said, it's, it's Jack Russell meets the island of Dr. Moreau. Which is unfortunate, because I was kind of hoping to be Jack Russell visits Fantasy Island. <laughs> the plane. The moon, boss. The moon. <laughs> the werewolf, boss. The werewolf. Um, so, and, and then we also get the generic um, goon, which, um, again, John, you wouldn't know this, but we've had one of these in every Jack Russell story. Had the guy with the metal hand last issue, and of course he had the chauffeur in the first issue. Usually brutish, muscle-bound, very cruel, um, and always deserving of their fate. They always meet meet a horrible fate in a way that is supposed to, yeah, like Trace says, be well deserved. Now, in this case, I will say it, most adaptations of Island of Dr. Moreau at some point have a subordinate character who is incredibly cruel to the Beastmen. So, in, in this situation, it at least makes sense that that, that sort of guy would be there. Um, but, but it also does fit into a pattern within the, the issues we've read so far. Yeah. And I just can't get over how stupid Jack Russell is here. I mean, he, he should know that it's 
you know, the day of the month he turns into a werewolf, because I think we've established this point, it is monthly, not nightly, like we originally thought. I had that same confusion when I was going in. I was like, okay, werewolf by night, but are they doing, like, a month thing, or just in the evenings? And and I think, I'm wanting, I, I'm trying to remember here, I'm wanting to say that it's not just the night of the full moon, but, like, the night leading up to it and the night immediately after, or something like that? The moon is not noticeably unfull for like three days. Right. So I, th- I think it, it's not a single night, but it's also not every night. I'm just like, maybe Jack should have put this excursion off for a few, for a week. I think he <laughs> should maybe invest in like an almanac or something. Like something that gives him the phases of the moon for each month. Or even just a pocket calendar. There are, there are watches yeah. that do that for you. I'm pretty sure they had him in the 70s. It's not hard to count to 28. <laughs> I mean, we've established that Jack Russell's not smart. So, I, I, I have to say, I really enjoyed the art of this issue. Yeah, I know some people who aren't fans of Mike Klug, but I really enjoy him with Werewolf. I, I think his style suits this kind of tone. Mm-hmm, I'd agree with that. Um, especially, again, in the back half of the issue when we've got, like, the... the sort of monster creatures and the werewolf running around and lots of shadows. Like, his style suits that yeah, there's, that kind of I material. I was just noticing there's this panel at the t- top of page 10 of Black Bar where he's like, perhaps this time we will succeed. And it's just really nicely done. There's lots of detail there. The shadowing's very good. Um, it's blue for... His art can be kind of simplistic and a little bit cartoony at times, especially like when you look at like Jack Russell's face. But mm-hmm. he gets motion down well. And we've talked about, you know, there are some panels where he just really shines. And even, uh, it's the bottom of 15, I think, but there's not a lot of detail to it. But as, as the the creatures are sort of crowding in on the, the goon, like... Um, it's just really effectively done to to create a sense of claustrophobia there. Yeah, it's really good. Really, this is really frightening. I think this is the most frightening mm-hmm. thing we may have seen in these horror comics up to this point. I think if I was a kid yeah. on the covers reading this um, back in the 70s, I might be a little frightened. Uh, it, 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 it does pretty well. Um, he does monsters. He does gnarly hands he does you know ugly faces ugly in the sense of you know not pencil drawn perfect looking humans but just like really normal sort of abnormal asymmetrical looking humans right. mm-hmm. um one thing that's weird about this issue and it's something that i think i've commented on on other issues of werewolf by night is that the caption boxes are in first person but they don't seem to be the same first person as the thought bubbles coming from the werewolf. Yeah. I mean, at at, at certain points it kind of seems like it's somebody talking to Jack. At other points it it seems like it's it's Jack himself talking, maybe in, like, Mm -hmm. the past tense. That's what I was thinking, is that it it feels like narrated from a time apart right like, the legend the of the happened. werewolf by night yeah yeah whereas his thoughts in the moment are what he thought of in the moment 
Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Which had the character who's established as a writer shown up throughout the issue, that would have been a perfect way of continuing the caption boxes. Oh, yeah. I miss Buck Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so Jack murders a guy, again. Yes, as, as he does. does. This time he is being controlled by Dun 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 Marlene. I mean, there's something screwed with Marlene. And, I mean, the extent of what she is was surprising. She She's a mutant, which is... Mm-hmm. It's good in the sense that it leads back to the rest of the Marvel Universe, which is this is kind of the first time in a Jack Russell story where we've seen him being linked to the Marvel Universe proper with Dimensions and Mutants. And we talked about that previously, how his story being located more or less on the West Coast, right? right? Like, at a time when almost all of the Marvel Universe was New York-based. Yeah, stuff like Spider-Woman going to San Francisco and stuff, that was years away. The vast, like, 99%. I guess Hulk is the only real notable exception, because Hulk's kind of all over the place, mostly in the West. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so this is is pre-West Coast Avengers, this is pre-Champions, this is pre-Daredevil moving West. Like, um, it's interesting that we're getting these sort of teases of him being part of a bigger world. Right, and it's interesting in mutant history as well, because as we talked about, X-Men was basically cancelled at this point. That It would mm-hmm. be years from this point w- until we get giant size X-Men number one. But I guess Beast was still kicking around. Was he an Avenger at this point? Uh, he was either an Avenger, or he was showing up in his own stories. Right. Uh, I want but, to say he became an Avenger around the time that the X-Men came back. Okay. I feel like Beast joining the Avengers and the Champions and all that starting up, that was all kind of in the same realm of months as the X-Men coming back. That makes sense. But you're right, it's in the it's in the sort of dead period for mutants really being an active thing. Although, I have to say, this this was a really good cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, I think the only thing that could have might have made it better is like if he got a tour of the statue garden earlier and noticed, mm-hmm. man, these statues are kind of creepy. Uh, but e- Set it up. even then, I don't think I would have suspected Marlene. Right. And I, have, I just have to say, I really like the last panel. Just again, talking about the art, the like her facing away but the close-up above her with the eyes is just really cool right and i think klug has this very nice kind of lodge style to it and we get one of these it seems like in almost every issue and we talked about the one last time being really gorgeous this is a really another another really good one mm-hmm. i like it and and, and they're they're good mood pieces like it's not really about conveying time or motion or anything like that, but it's sort of showing you the sense of everything that's happening in the moment. You get this kind of sense of being overwhelmed, like probably Jack is feeling if he's able to think at all inside that um, statue. But yeah, I mean, it's to be continued, and I realize this, I think, is Jack's last appearance in Marvel Premiere, and he doesn't get, sorry, Marvel Spotlight, 
and he doesn't get his own book until I think three months down the road. Yeah, and even at that, it's to be continued question mark. Right. So like, oh, so it's like leaving the entire series on a question, not just his, not just his immediate fate. Right. Kind of like, yeah. Mm-hmm. They mentioned letters column that the Werewolf by Night number one is still a few months away. Yep. That's mm-hmm. a finger to leave something on for months. Right, and and to expect people to switch from one title to another to follow it. Right, which as we all know, back in the day was not an easy feat. Because there really is no stable fan press at the time. There, There's no stable distribution of comic distributors at this point. You know, if you want comics, you got to go for the newsstand. Right, it's not the direct market is not something that's penetrated every uh, city and town. I think there are maybe a few comic shops, but they're in places like New York and right. They're major markets, or they're like secondhand bookshops. But yeah, I, I again, I can't believe they left this as a cliffhanger between two series. That's yeah, and it's, it's a you know if. It hadn't come back as Werewolf by Night, number one. He could be in that statue for years, right? So much so that you might wonder if, when they did finally bring it back, if they might just ignore this cliffhanger, because that also sometimes happens. In- right. I'm very curious. It's sort of like, uh, and we will get to this someday, I'm sure. But the debut of Moon Knight, where he is almost a totally different character than what you end up seeing once he gets his own title. All right, I think that does it for uh, Marvel Spotlight number four. Is it will come back with Doom Dracula number three? After these messages, we'll be right back. The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island, Friday night at eight. First time on TV, the movie's most seductive, Dracula, starring Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier. His name fills men with terror. You do not know how many men have come against me. His touch fills women with desire. I need your blood. I need... The greatest lover who ever lived died and lived again. Do you think with your crosses and your wavers you can destroy me? Dracula. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, where I have been kidnapped. Please, if you're listening to this, do get help. These guys have called me from my home to this dank, smelly dungeon to make me talk about comics. But it's while we're here. We've tried asking for help before. It doesn't work. This is like our fourth <laughs> episode. We're here. We need for help every time, and nobody sends anybody. We might as well talk about some Dracula. So we have Tomb of Dracula, issue three, which uh, comes to us all the way from the Halcyon years of 1972. Cover date, July 1972, written by Archie Goodwin, artist Gene Colan, 
inker Tom Palmer, letterer John Costanza, and the editor, as always, Stan Lee. Not to um, be confused is, with George Costanza. Right, no. Um, he doesn't work uh, for the Yankees. Um, this is Who Stalks the Vampire. We begin on a foggy London night. Frank Drake steps up onto the ledge of a bridge, preparing to end his life in atonement for all that has happened in the previous issues. However, just as Frank leaps toward the water, a pair of shadowy figures arrive and rescue him from himself. The pair soon introduce themselves as Rachel Van Helsing and her mute companion Taj, and they recruit Frank into their mission to destroy Dracula. Meanwhile, Frank's former friend Cliff Graves is hiding out in a pub when the owner tells him it's closing time and he has to leave immediately. Cliff is terrified of the night, and with good reason, for as soon as he is thrown outside, Dracula appears to him and hypnotizes him into service. Under Dracula's power, Cliff tracks down Dracula's coffin, scheduled to be destroyed under orders from Frank Drake, and he makes arrangements for his master to arrive shortly. But as fate would have it, Rachel, Frank, and Taj arrive at that same location with an arsenal of wooden stakes and crosses. While the three vampire hunters prepare outside, Cliff and the night porter struggle to move the coffin. It slips from their hands and crashes to the ground, revealing a secret compartment filled with gold coins. At this moment, Dracula arrives to claim his property and the life of the porter. The three vampire hunters rush in and open the coffin to reveal the dead porter inside. Behind them, Dracula and Cliff try to make a quick exit, but Drake leaps into action and delays the count with a cross. Dracula commands Graves to remove the threat, and he pummels Drake with a right hand to the jaw. In the midst of the fight, the bags containing Dracula's gold begin to tear, spilling coins everywhere and further delaying the count from escape. He orders Graves to gather the coins again as he goes after Taj and Rachel. Taj is easily dispatched through brute force, but Rachel almost has Dracula cornered with her crossbow and wood-tipped bolts, until Dracula transforms into a bat to escape just as Graves gathers the last of the treasure. The three vampire hunters are trapped in the basement until Taj uses his great strength to break through the locked door, revealing the police on the other side. The vampire hunters are blamed for the death of the porter and taken to Scotland Yard where they protest their innocence. While the vampire hunters are delayed, Cliff Graves has exchanged the gold coins for modern currency and loaded his resting master into a shipping crate to drive into the country to meet with the person who has purchased Castle Dracula from Frank. Back in London, the porter who was killed by Dracula awakens with a thirst for blood, thus proving the innocence of the three vampire hunters. They quickly dispatch the newborn vampire and begin to plan their next move. Meanwhile, in an out-of-the-way mansion, the solicitor Mr. Langston arrives to meet with his client, Mrs. Strangway. The butler guides Langston through the curiously decorated mansion to meet with Strangway, where Langston reveals that there is a new buyer interested in her most recent property acquisition, Castle Dracula. It seems that Strangway is desperate to reverse the effects of aging, and has become obsessed with the supernatural and the occult. Her latest attempt at recapturing her youth is inspired by what she has read about Dracula. Langston protests that Dracula is just a myth, and that Strangway needs to accept aging as a natural part of life, but for his efforts he is dismissed from her service. Soon after, Dracula himself appears before her. Knowing the rules of vampirism, Strangway invites the Count in, 
and suggests that they might be able to help each other. And we end on a cliffhanger. This was really solid. I really liked uh, Rachel. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that they did a pretty good job of giving her her own agency and making her a character and of equal footing with the male character and not just the girl that shows up and immediately becomes second fiddle. Right. It helps that of the people there, she's the expert. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the one who knows what's up and how to fight it. And although it, it, it certainly could do it later, they didn't seem to really hint at any romantic involvement between them right now, which mm-hmm. I also appreciate. Um, she's a badass. I mean, they're... Yeah. And I, I guess I guess technically, except for very technically Dracula, we've gotten our first appearance of a character that has appeared in a Marvel movie in, in Tomb of Dracula, because Rachel Van Helsing does appear in Blade Trinity. Oh. Oh. Okay. Although, I mean, if, if you want an illustration of how much of a badass Rachel Van Helsing there's this panel on number 11 that's coming up on her. And um, she, she, he's like, you show the. Oh, is it yeah, the I am a Van Helsing count. <laughs> you may recall the name. And remember, we are not without resources. Wheels around is holding a crossbow. It is so good. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh. And just good. even the panel before the crossbow, the smirk on her face, just the art, just totally captures how unfazed she is by the situation. It's great. Yes, she's a vampire hunter TM. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's go th- go at it from the beginning. Um, the beginning... Yeah, Frank Drake's trying to off himself. Yeah, we- we've got a serious, like, it's a wonderful life moment happening here. Right. Which, John, um, since I guess you didn't read the his issue, um, basically in the last issue he is forced to drive a stake through his girlfriend who Dracula had turned into a vampire in the first issue. Yeah, they, they mentioned that uh, through the course of the story, which, we'll, um, you know, people like Wolfman and Goodwin were really good about catching you up on the necessaries from previous issues just in the course of events. There's yeah. no recap page. Right. There's no info dump. But along the course of ways they're narrating the story, they're like, because this happened, by the way, Here's what happened. And yet, at the same time, right. this feels very dense and very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's what's smart about it is they spread spread it out so that you never get just one page of like recap exposition. It's a little bit thrown in in the caption boxes on the first page, and then a little bit in the dialogue with Rachel. And so, like, it, it comes to you when you need to know. But it. we'll see right. the exact opposite of that in our next issue. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really, really well done. It feels, like we said before, with Gene Cullen's artwork, like a Hammer horror film. Everything is very atmospheric. Everything is really well done. Um, lots of mood, lots of inking, lots of fog. Like the way he sees the way he sees his dead fiance's reflection in the water when he's about to jump. Yes. Um, although not to kill the accolades, on page seven. When they discovered the gold, um, we have Patton Oswalt as the uh, night porter. <laughs> yes, we do. I mean, that is. I think that was intentional. <laughs> you know, thirty years before he was important. When he he was he was, he was somewhat important in the nineties. He had his own Comedy Central show. Really? Okay. I honestly 
didn't really get to know who Patton Oswalt was, Patton Oswalt was until his role on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, that's fair. So that was that six is, years ago. Um, yeah, he had his own um, Comedy Central show in the 90s. But, you know, it was 90s Comedy Central, where, again, the only good thing on it was MST3K. Um, but, again, I really, I really dig Rachel in this story. The, the issue does a good job of making you want more of this team. Right. Yeah. And her... I like her manservant, too. I mean, he is kind of the cliche... Um, Indian manservant. Yeah, it and it's kind of... I mean, it's sort of cliche in a problematic sort of way that he's mute. Like, the one person of color in the issue doesn't really have a voice. Ow. Ow. Like, like he's... he Like, all of the agency that Rachel has, he has none of that. Right. Sometimes he is a badass. He is. He's just a stereotype. Yes. Right. Because actually, uh, that, uh, honestly, that's part of the stereotype. The big, muscle-bound, can't talk but can really fight, and oftentimes <laughs> will die tragically in the middle of mm-hmm. being a really good fighter. Right. Um, but he's good. Uh, I do like Taj and Rachel. Um, I'm sure they're on a break right now. Um, <laughs> sorry. That was a bit of a reach, I, but we're all friends here, right? So it's okay. Uh... Oh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, um, once again, Clifton is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Oh, yeah, he he's the Renfield of the story for sure. Yeah. Um, basically, Clifton was, um, okay, remember the girlfriend that Drake killed last issue? He mm-hmm. was her ex-boyfriend. Oh. And also a sort of friend of Frank's. So we got all kinds of soapy drama going on here. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, like, the, the whole first issue, he is planning to steal Castle Dracula from Drake and make a bunch of money off of it. He finds a skeleton in a coffin with a wooden stake in it and thinks, I should take the stake out of the skeleton. Well, generally, that's a safe move. <laughs> I'm just saying. I would also probably take the stake out of the skeleton because that's usually okay. But even if you're in the bowels of Castle Dracula? Okay, maybe yeah. not. But sometimes you really want steak and you find it. <laughs> and I love the depiction of the London police in this. Where it's like, well, we've caught you with a bunch of weapons and a dead body, so you're under arrest. And then, like, as soon as the dead guy comes back as a vampire, it's like, well, you're free to go. No more paperwork or questions asked. Right. This isn't right. going to be like a major news story. Right. It's like, yep, your story checks out. You're free to go. That's very British of them. <laughs> they go and drink tea after this. <laughs> Stiff upper lip and all that. And somewhere, Andy Leyland is screaming at his pipe. I'm sorry, Andy. I don't want to make you a stereotype. Um, but yeah, they... It's... It's a solid issue all around, and I like I liked the sort of Britishness of it, you know, the guys. I'm sure that Archie Goodwin only has a vague idea what he's talking about, but, you know, it works. And to be fair, right. what you're talking about, Trey, that is a very effective way of revealing the existence of fans. And, and, and Rachel knows it. Like, the whole time they're at Scotland Yard, she's like, yeah, you'll figure this out in a few minutes. Right. And I do feel bad for Patton Oswalt here. He's just like, I... And used for exposition. 
Yep. And and even like with the like when they when they kill the the new vampire, like the the guy at Scotland Yard is like, "Yep, well, better get it over with." Like like he he gets on board with the concept of vampirism really fast is all I'm saying. I think there's some untold story here we're missing. So maybe his cousin works for the Weird Happenings organization. The WHO, are y'all familiar with the WHO from Excalibur? Yep. Okay, so, you know, maybe he just, he hears stories, so he knows what, what goes on. So it is a, it does remind me of old episodes of Doctor Who, where it's kind of like, um, look, see, men made of metal trying to kill everyone. Can I take care of it now? Right. People are sometimes a little bit too willing to accept the complete outlandish things that Doctor Who presents. The world is bonkers. Let's take care of it, shall we? And and it's also notable. You you mentioned the way that this could be connected to organizations within the Marvel universe. Unlike Werewolf by Night, this one has not yet made any overtures to making those connections yet. Now we're gonna get there. Boy, are we gonna get there! But not yet. Yeah, I mean, we know down the line that he'll meet Spider-Man, and he's gonna meet Werewolf by Night, and everything. But... Oh, I mean, for sure, one of the weirdest, coolest issues of Tomb of Dracula is when Dracula fights the Silver Surfer. <laughs> I am awesome. not even lying. Well, Marvel team up, uh, you know, all of Marvel for a while was doing those giant size specials in the 70s. And Marvel team ups had a special name whenever they would do a giant size one. It wasn't called giant size Marvel team. It was called like super-sized Spider-Man, something like that. And one of those is fun because Dracula's in it. And it's like, so you think of Spider-Man-Dracula team-up, you're going there, like, how's this going to work? And they actually never meet. Spider-Man oh. and Dracula are both on a boat. They're both involved in the story, and they never actually run across one another. That's weird. Right. Well, but it's fun. It's a fun story. We've seen team-up yeah. stories like that before. So. Okay, that, that 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 is very weird, though. Um, but speaking of team-up stories... Yeah, I mean, I again, as with the previous issues of the book, solid, highly recommended, great art, fun story. Rachel Van Helsing adds a lot to the the way the book works overall. Actually, I don't... Both of these, one, both of these maybe want to read more of the series, but the Tomb of Dracula especially. Yeah. It, it, it whetted my appetite for this book. Okay, I will say... I am intrigued by the woman we meet at the end of the issue. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that that ending, which basically introduces a whole new character to what's going on. That's a Norma Desmond feel to her. Yeah. Which I know you're a big film buff, Trey, and W you, John, but I, I had to write a paper about Norma Desmond once for oh you know, really interesting stuff. Also of interest in the letter page of this book. We actually, I think this is the first issue of Tomb of Dracula where we have a letter page and you actually have people writing in talking about how Tomb of Dracula compares to traditional vampire lore. Right. Which is actually, and he gives them a pretty good, he, he gives, he, it's by, uh, oh, sorry, she, Margaret um, McClelland Watson, B.A.M.A., University of Illinois, uh, yada, yada, yada. So, she gives them some pointers on vampire lore, but she also kind of gives them good marks for how they portray vampires in the story. 
Well, vampires would certainly be in the um, the popular mindscape right now because Dark Shadows has been running yeah. for years. I don't, yeah, know if y'all, which, I don't know if y'all talked about it on the show before, but... I I'm mean, a fan. I, I, own, Drac- uh, I own the entire show. series on DVD in a coffin-shaped box. It is awesome. Oh, did you get that set? Yeah. Awesome. Um, but yeah, between Dark Shadows and Hammer Horror, like, vaguely British-y... Victorian vampires were cool again. Which is good, and it kind of, it helped Marvel kind of skirt the comic code a little bit, where, you know, this is right where Marvel is breaking out of the comic code. Right, like, there, there is a line you can draw between Morbius showing up and Tomb of Dracula starting. Yeah, at some point, someone decided to start pushing what they could get away with. Mm-hmm. And... I guess the comics code just wasn't pushing back that much. Well, and uh, I mean, looking back at the the cover, um, Tomb of Dracula approved by the comics code. Yeah, they're going to keep the stamp on there. I mean, comics code is in effect until the early '90s. Yeah, but what the con- uh, uh, you know the li- the list of strictures that were drawn up in 1954, if they were to adhere to that list, this series would never be allowed. Oh no! But they just never. stopped enforcing them as. As as rigorously, are y'all familiar with how the comics code stopped being used? Have y'all heard the story? Um, there are several stories. Which one are you referring to? <clears throat> okay, so my, from my understanding, the way the comics code worked was uh, you sent your comic to the comics code people, and if they had any problems, they would send it back with their uh, request for change before they put their stamp on it. And if you didn't get a response that was, you know, tacit agreement that your book was fine. Um, and in the early nineties, someone realized that they just weren't getting responses. The people from the comics code weren't sending any books back. And someone drove out to the address and there was just this pile of comics deliveries. (laughs) At some point, some when the comics code people went home. And didn't say anything. Because I remember it was a big wow. thing in the 2000s. Yeah, because they added like the the rated teen, rated mature, like all ages, whatever. Wow, mm-hmm. just imagining like a mail slot stuffed with comics, comics on the in the stack in the hallway outside, and just this dusty office that's empty. It, it's crazy because of such a huge political force they were in the 50s. You know, during McCarthyism and, you know, all the anti-gay phobia that was going on then, just all this yeah. stuff. And then it just, they just stopped caring. Speaking of Marvel team-ups, which we did do that a little bit, like, maybe half an hour ago. Um, we'll be right back with Marvel team-up number three. Spider-Man teams up with the Human Torch. You can have the power of the Fantastic Four. It's clobbering time! With Thing Feet and Thing Hands, the earthquake and moon-shaken power of the Thing can be yours. I am the Thing! Turn up the heat. I am the Human Torch! With the Human Torch mask and gloves. Loaded with the sounds and missile-firing action of the Human Torch. Yeah! Is Doctor Doom finished? Pizza! Thing Hands, Thing Feet, and the Human Torch mask and glove set. Each sold separately. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. The next issue we'll be talking about today is Marvel Team-Up number three. 
The Power to Purge. Cover date on this bad boy is July 1972. Writer is Jerry Conway. Artist is Ross Andrew. Inker, Frank Giacoya. Letter, Artie Simic. And editor, of course, is Stan Lee. Some weeks ago, two brothers, Jacob and Jefferson Bolt, argue by the waterfront. Jefferson is accusing Jacob of being a sellout. When Jacob tries to call Jefferson's new crowd scum, Jefferson decks him. As Jacob leaves, Jefferson sees the body floating in the water. Proving he's not all bad, Jefferson jumps in to retrieve the potential drowning victim, only to discover it is Michael Morbius, the living vampire. Still weak from the events of Amazing Spider-Man 102, Morbius shows that vampirism is colorblind and feeds on Jefferson. In the present, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, is swinging across the skyline of New York City, but isn't feeling too well. He's feeling so poorly, in fact, that he's overcome by vertigo and falls unconscious on a rooftop. Meanwhile, at the Baxter Building, Ben Grimm, a.k.a. the ever-loving blue-eyed thing, and Johnny Storm, a.k.a. the Human Torch, are arguing over what to watch on television when they receive a visitor in the form of Michael Morbius' fiance, Martine, who gives them a recap of Amazing Spider-Man 101 and begs them for their help in finding her fiance. Johnny Storm is skeptical of Martine's story, but as he flies over the city, he has second thoughts. Recalling a story told to him by Spider-Man of just such a creature, Johnny decides to catch up with Webhead at its stopping grounds of State U in Queens. Meanwhile, in a warehouse on Long Island, Morbius discovers that his companion of the last few weeks, Jefferson, has also been infected with his curse. Horrified, Morbius flees into the night, hoping to find the only man he thinks can help him, Professor Jorgensen of State U. Speaking of Jorgensen, He's giving a lecture on vascular disease when the Human Torch bursts into his classroom, followed shortly by Spider-Man. Over tea, the two teenage superheroes fill the professor in on the fate of his colleague, Michael Morbius, unaware that the man himself lurks on the outskirts of campus. As he snacks on a drunk homeless man, the bum's final scream of terror alerts two marbles who race into a fever-maddened Spider-Man tears into Morbius, almost killing him, before the Human Torch pulls him away. The two then double-team the vampire before being pulled off yet again by college students, including Jefferson and Jacob Bolt. Jefferson and his friends dogpile the heroes, but Morbius uses the opportunity to feed on Jefferson. Seeing his brother attacked, Jefferson uses his new vampiric abilities to take on Morbius, only to be knocked aside and his skull cracked on a rock. Morbius uses this opportunity to escape, leaving Jacob to mourn over his now dead brother, as Johnny Storm tells him to not blame himself, that it was what he did right that made him an example to his brother and made his brother do right in the end. You know, guys... I have somewhat mixed feelings about this comic. I mean, I'm not really sure I like it. No, this... And the pieces don't really all fit together as well as I would like. 
no, you get you very much get the idea that they had a longer story in mind and were setting everything up and then realized, oh crap, we've got two pages left to finish this, let's do it. Right. And also the whole like sort of bookended thing with Jefferson, um I I can't prove this, but I kind of have to think that this is some sort of cash-in, because this is the same summer that Blackula came out. Oh no. Okay. And was a huge hit. Right. <laughs> okay. I just... just need a second. <laughs> oh, that is unfortunate. It's also a fun movie, just FYI. Like, it's, it's actually a for what it is as a weird sort of genre mixing kind of thing it's worth checking out but I just have to believe that this coming out around the same time was if not a reference to the movie itself then at least some response to the fact that that movie was being marketed at the time yeah it actually came out a few months after this comic um, gotcha just just to as was checking the dates um, this is an April comic it's an August movie but right but certainly, I mean, it's being marketed and it, it's, it's possible. Um, I like to think that it's a effort to squeeze a, a story about some minor characters and making the minor characters African-American um, was just a way of trying to work different kinds of people into the stories more. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it does fall into a lot of storytelling tropes with young right. African-American men, but... In 1972, those tropes were being forged rather than being worn out and tired. So I'm not sure how much grief to give it over that. Right. And, but And that first page or so, it's almost like a page from Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, got transposed into our Spider-Man comic. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Until the last panel where they find Michael Morbius, this entire conflict could lead into a Luke Cage mystery that he needs to solve. Right. Although, right. I will say something. In Jefferson's defense, he does nothing wrong in this book. I mean, he punches his brother, which, I mean, I've never had siblings, but I understand that's a pretty regular occurrence. I mean, if you look at my daughters, punch siblings. Like he, he technically rescues Morbius. And then he stops what is basically kind of like police brutality on his campus. Right. From what I can tell, Jefferson's not a bad dude. No. He and his brother just had some old unresolved issues. Right. I mean, you had, you had, I guess you're supposed to get an idea he's kind of like a street, a street ruffian. I don't want to say street thug because it has bad connotations these days, but I mean, that he's hanging out with a bad crowd. But again, we don't see an example of that really. I mean, the, no. the worst thing they do is they kind of beat up on Spider Man and Human Torch a little bit. But to be fair, Spider-Man was about to kill a dude. Right. I think Jefferson's really redeemed here. I just think he's a tragic death. Right, yeah. It, it, it sounds like sort of one misunderstanding after another. Which, if you look at it, Spider-Man and Human Torch are kind of assholes in this. They're like, oh, your brother's dead? That sucks. All right, Torchy, let's go. Well, and they also, throughout the book, just sort of jump into things without sort of 
thinking about what's going on. Yeah, they do that. But I had the same thought about the ending. Torch does some very high and mighty sermonizing mm-hmm. as the boy is mourning over his brother. Um, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Um, and, and the, the Spider-Man, the, you know, Torch, there's hope for you yet, old buddy, is just so smug. <laughs> just after a guy died. I mean, usually in Spider-Man comics, you know, if a ki- if a kid died like this, he would be grief-stricken and like. Oh, he'd be, he'd agonize over it for the next few right. issues. We would get the spider again, um, which we get in the nineties. You probably don't even remember the spider. I'm not Spider-Man. Whatever. I'm the spider. Yeah, he loses his parents. He loses a lot. It's it's this it's the psychological status quo that leads into the clone saga, right? Right. Peter's Peter's in a wretched place. Um, going to some lighter moments, I did enjoy when what's her name Martine shows up in the Fantastic Four. I like the Ben and Johnny just fighting over what they're going to watch on TV, but also whenever Martine shows up on the video, Ben's like, "Whoa, she's hot." This is your lucky day, Ben. Let the woman come up, talk to her. And then she comes up and she's an emotional wreck. Um, and see, Ben, this is how we get scrolls. Don't, don't do that, Ben. We, we, we had a training seminar. We had a training seminar about this. This is how we get scrolls. Do you want scrolls? And uh, Sue comes in. She's like, Benjamin Grinch, be ashamed of yourself. Man, leave. And then she reaches out to Martine. And we get the flashbacks from Amazing Spider-Man. Yep. Yes, lots of flashbacks. I'll point out from the previous page, they're they're arguing about watching All in the Family. Oh yeah, nice little Carol O'Connor cameo in the background. Yeah, yeah. Archie Bunker right there. Uh, I'm sick and tired of arguing with a bunker addict like you anyhow. You can take your blasted TV show. And Johnny Storm goes off somewhere and then comes back on the next page. I don't like the way you yep. rest- is it Ross Andrew or Andrew? Ross Andrew. Ross Andrew. I don't like the way he draws Ben Grimm. The the part the the only part that really bugs me is the close up uh, where he sees the screen with uh, uh, right before that uh, she gets invited in. His face just looks really goofy. Really goofy. Uh, like I think it's the eyes. Like he has really cartoony eyes. It's not the worst Ben will appear in the course of his history. That's true. That is true. People do really weird things with his rock formations. All right. But yeah, I mean, it's nice to see the Fantastic Four in the brief period they show up. I, I almost thought that Reed and Sue would show up and Ben would show up later to help out, seeing as they were kind of looking for Morbius. Right. don't. They're going to be the next issue. Yeah, I forget exactly how, because the next issue is a team with the X-Men, and he does end up with Xavier, but I forget how the transition happens. Uh, I guess I could just look it up, but uh, I don't know if they ever get to read or if they just end up with Xavier. Oh, we'll be covering that one next episode. I know that... (laughs) Okay. But Spider-Man is sick at the beginning of this story, and it's kind of out of nowhere. I don't remember if it came from anything. So I'm thinking this might be continuing the previous Morbius appearance because uh, he had the six arms, he was like mutating in weird ways, and Morbius's blood ended up being the serum that 
fixed no. it. So I'm wondering if it's no. It's was been it a not few months since then? They, they, uh, they okay, you're right. Few, he's been living with Jefferson for a few weeks by this point. So it's it's been so okay. much. He just has the flu, yet again. Is that yes. all it is? It's the flu. And you gotta wonder how many times has Peter Parker gotten the flu in a comic book? And I figured it was another of those weird his powers are going hot haywire kind of things because that happens. A as far lot. as I can tell, it's just the flu. And I'm guessing the Bugle Healthcare huh. Plan doesn't cover the flu shot. And this is why we need single payer. Sorry. <laughs> so that we don't have flu-ridden superheroes swinging around our cities. I mean, that's just... That's unhygienic. He goes to class like that. He's going to get everybody in that classroom sick. Although he doesn't actually go to class. Although he kind of does go to class. Trey, how would you feel about two superheroes bursting into your classroom? Um... I mean, if if they were as disruptive as Spidey and the Torch, um, I would I would have to ask them to leave. John, um, you know, as long as they're willing to, you know, pay attention in class, come on in, have a seat. We'll talk about algebra now. Also, Johnny Storm is definitely on fire when he enters the room, and that's not. <laughs> yeah, that would set off my sprinklers. Right. I mean, I'm not allowed to light a scented candle in my classroom so how does the human torch work and at one point in that scene Johnny Storm was like we're the good guys remember and it's like yeah you actually do need to remind me every so often in this issue we are a-holes in this issue you really are terrible and they don't even win Morbius gets away at the end right right which I guess is set up for next issue but if, if I mean if you're a kid just picking this up off the stands as a one-off thing. You're kind of like, wow, Spider-Man and Human Torch suck. Well, and I, it, it's it's a fine line because they're, they're assholes, but in a really sort of snarky superhero kind of way. And that's, that's a fine line for writing Spidey and the Human Torch because they do, t- that, that's their chemistry is that they're snarky at each other, but you push it too far and they become jerks. Right, we, we're kind of like, um, we're on like borderline Warren Ellis and the boys here. We're kind of like, oh, yeah. everybody who people in tights are the only ones to matter and sucks to be a civilian in a superhero world. Got it. Right. I feel like there are multiple Jerry Conways out there. Like, or Jerry's Conway. But he, you know, he's writing Amazing Spider-Man or he's going to start writing Amazing Spider-Man soon. And he does a lot of really important, engaging stuff over there that culminates in... Well, it starts with the death of Gwen Stacy, and then culminates in the, the first Clone Saga and the Jackal and all that. Um, and then he comes back in like the, the 80s and going into the 90s, writing Web of Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man, and lots of really good stuff there. Jerry Conway has a great history of Spider-Man, but also on Marvel Team-Up, it's really weird. And doesn't always flow, and it's like it's a different writer and a different character. Right, and I mean, we see that with team-up books of the time period, where I, I've i been reading Marvel 2-in-1 as I listen to Fantasticast, and if you've read any of Marvel 2-in-1, you, you kind of know it, was, it really is a kind of up-and-down sort of series, 
it really has a great beginning with Steve Gerber. He's like, I'm just going to write this as like a thing solo book where he has weird adventures and meets other superheroes. And then when Steve Gerber leaves, it's kind of like writers revolving door of writers and trying to find some way to shoehorn a team up in in here. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I kind of like the way to do it in this story. I like that Reed Richards and Morbius correspond with one another. That's a very Marvel kind of touch. Yeah, like setting up that this this broader scientific community is existing in the background. Which I like. But, and, okay, so Johnny kind of remembers something about a science vampire, and it's like, it's a long shot, but I'll go check with Spider-Man. I'm like, is that really a long shot, Johnny? How many weird science vampires named Morbius do you think there are? At least until Marvel Zombies 3. Right. But... I mean this issue is a comic yeah it's it's okay it's not great it's it doesn't add anything to the story of Morbius for sure um like because really he's no different here than he was in his previous appearance um it's not I don't think it's as visually interesting as the Morbius introduction two-parter. Um, it's because it's not just, Gil Kane. Right, exactly. I and I, I, now, now, I like Ross Andrew. I think he's a great Bronze Age Spider-Man artist. But he's not Gil Kane. Right, and, and Gil Kane captured the sort of this-is-a-horror-creature aspect of Morbius far better than, than this book does. Although, I really hate how he draws Peter Parker. Yeah, we had that discussion. I thought it worked for that book, for that particular story, but I could see that in other stories. Being and, an and I've noticed this with Gilkin's artwork. It's like, how many shots of somebody's nose do I really need? <laughs> That's how you know it's Gilkin artwork. All the up nose shots. And actually, you saw that towards the end of Ditko's run on Spider Man 2. So I almost feel like sometimes that Gilkin was emulating Ditko in his. Um, no, Gilkin's career goes back. To when Sp- Dicko was doing Spider-Man, but still, um, right. I was I was kind of looking ahead just to kind of see where some of the unresolved questions of this story end up getting answered in the next issue, because um, Peter is still sick. Next issue, and he actually collapses. I think they do end up tying it back to Morbius, but I'm not able to read and find out the actual details. So it might be like a delayed effect that mm-hmm. he's getting here. I mean, I was stuff. thinking, I was thinking maybe the blood was a partial cure, but now his his like weird secondary mutations are kicking in again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been months. It has been a few months. Amazing Spider-Man One Two was was uh, August nineteen seventy one. This is April nineteen seventy two. So a few yeah. months, but not. I mean, as far as Marvel time goes, not a huge long time. True. Now, nowadays with the storyline, it had been twelve minutes. Right. <sighs> Comics. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. Do we have anything else to say about this issue? I mean, I wouldn't call it essential. No. Although, it has been reprinted in Essential Marvel Team Up Volume 1 trade. <laughs> as well as Spectacular Spider Man number 6, 
and Spider-Man Magazine number three. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I guess I set that one up. Spider-Man, Ma- oh, magazine. That was like a. It was a collection. Tra- yeah, reprints. Yeah, I yeah. guess. Spectacular Spider-Man number six. It was a backup story, maybe. Oh, it. This was. I just pulled up the cover of that Spider-Man magazine, and that's kind of a cool collection of stories. It's got nothing can stop the Juggernaut. Uh, it's got the the Morbius story, and it's got something with Sandman in it. But it looks like it's all reprints. Oh, so it's some of the best Spider-Man stories ever told, and then Spider-Man and Human Torch being assholes. <laughs> right. Well, Spectacular Spider-Man number six is... Number seven is a new Morbius story. Okay. And number six is just a reprint of this. It's not even pulling it from anything else. It's a reprint of this story. Mm. So, um, I guess that was a way to fill a month <laughs> before going well, on. And you, you said Morbius? the next one, the next one was another Morbius story. Yeah. So spectacular Spider-Man seven is a Morbius story by Archie Goodwin and Sabi Sema. I could I could see reprinting an earlier Morbius story as a setup for that. I mean, it, it's like you that wouldn't fly today, but back then I could see doing that. Yeah, back then, where if your issue was running late, you just made another issue mm-hmm. that you pulled out of your drawer. You had issues on hand to stick in places whenever your artists were running late. Right. Because it was more important to get a book out the door than to necessarily have new content. Right. Hmm. Which I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that because. You know, I'm paying for new content whenever I order when I subscribe to your comic book and you send me an issue and it's just a reprint of when Beast first turned furry. But it's only old content if you already own that right. that issue. And again, this is before the era of everything being collected in trade paperbacks, where a lot of times the only way somebody would read an old story like there was a recent issue of Fantasticast where advertises a story with Tigra and Thundra and a thing fighting something and then the inside story is a reprint of a Doctor Doom story by Jack Kirby that has nothing to do with the cover. (laughs) (laughs) And there's like a very weak Mia Copa um, in like the following issue but yeah, and, and this is the era where DC is still, like, every six or eight issues um, running a giant-sized reprint collection instead of, like, Spider-Man, Superman 254 is an issue, and 256 is an issue, but between them is 255, which is a 100-page giant of reprints. So right. they do that, you know, once or twice a year with a lot of their series. So reprints randomly out of nowhere are still very common. So you're right, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Anyway, I think... Um, that does it for Marvel Team Up. Uh, we'll be right yep. back with this message where we get to lo- know a little bit more about our new permanent co-host, John M. Wilson. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast, Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on a mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it. 
and now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. (laughs) It's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, Make Ours Marvel. And we're back uh, on Tomb of Ideas, and I'm Trey, James is here with me, and our new permanent co-host, John, um, we are pleased to have you with us. Uh, it has now, been fun talking about these comics. Now, wait a second. You, you, this is permanent? Like, I, I, I can't get out of here? Oh, I don't know how to send you no, back. I mean, I just read this book, and I, I was going to break it if I can summon, not summon a ghost, but summon you. But don't worry, it's actually pretty nice here. We've got a coffee maker. Um, Trey and I are using the two beds, but I think there's some gasoline-soaked rags in a corner that you can sleep on. Oh, yay. That should make for some hot nights. I mean, I all I'm saying is I am team never opening that book of spells ever again, so that means you're stuck here. Okay. Um, I guess I have to figure out how to do my podcasting from here. I mean, I, I, I have... Uh, do you get Skype down here? Because that's usually how I do it. Um, what's Skype? Okay, that's not going to work. All right, well... We, um, we have internet, but all it lets us see are pages related to Marvel horror comics. Okay, well, you out there in listener land, if you hear this, please come save me. And also, please listen to my podcast that comes out every Friday, at least until... We run out of episodes because I can't record anymore. Um, but no, for, for reals, thank you very much for checking out my show, Make Ours Marvel. It's at makeoursmarvel.com. It is a uh, journey with me and my friend Michael Kaiser through the early days of Marvel. We are covering every issue of the Marvel superhero universe in order. And we talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. And then we close it down for a week. We also do special episodes uh, talking about the Marvel movies as they come out. And yes, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and that's every week uh, on And Fridays. it's a really good podcast. Anyway, um, let's talk about um, chores. Now, I don't do the dishes, the laundry, or anything. So you and Trey can divide it. Wait, wait John? John? I'm getting something. I can see through you. You're a ghost. I did it. I did it. Wait, you're you're fading. Yeah, it's it's tingling. Makes me feel kind of good, like we used to climb the ropes in gym class. Oh God, you're tingling. This does not seem natural. Oh, oh, and John. I think we lost him. Crap. Well. And we're alone again. Still stuck in a tomb. Just me and you. And that mold in the fridge. Great. Well. I guess. I guess we lost our co-host. 
Not even the one we wanted to lose. <sighs> Tell me about it. Anyway, next issue, we'll be talking about Marvel Spotlight number five, Tomb of Dracula number four, Werewolf by Night number one, and Marvel Team Up number four, which will have the X-Men. Really nice to have John there for that one. Yep. Good night, everybody. Good night. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! <laughs>